Welcome to Hypospadias Conversations with co-hosts Bonnie Steinberg and John Filippelli. We are members of the community that have experienced living with hypospadias, epispadias, the surgeries that are often used to correct for them. And we want to talk to people who are members of that community and their family and friends about many of the feelings and issues that we all have faced. We are not doctors. We do not represent the medical community and we want to be clear that we are discussing our personal experiences, experiences that too often are not shared, leaving many boys, men, and families feeling that they are alone. You are not alone. Our goal is to offer frank conversations about our thoughts, give many people company, give parents who are wondering what to do with their new babies that have been born with hypospadias or epispadias some resources to think about treatment to think about parenting boys with this difference. The conversations are personal, frank, and we hope that you are aware of how vulnerable we feel, how risky it feels to open ourselves up in public. We hope to cultivate your compassion and understanding and create more safety to have these conversations. So welcome to another episode of Hypospadias Conversations. I'm your host, John Filippelli, along with my co-host, Bonnie Steinberg. How are you today, Bonnie? We're doing well. We're excited about this, this podcast with our guest. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, let's get right to it. Uh, Alice Drager, PhD, is a noted historian, writer, bioethicist, and author of many titles, including the highly acclaimed Galileo's Middle Finger, Hermaphrodites and the Medical Invention of Sex, and also Intersex in the Age of Ethics. She's also a former professor of clinical medical humanities and bioethics at Northwestern University. As a journalist, her bylines have been seen in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, The Atlantic, Pacific Standard, The Los Angeles Times, and The Chicago Tribune, among many others. And her TED talk is Anatomy, Destiny, has been viewed more than 1 million times. You can follow Alice on Twitter and visit her at alicedrager.com. Today, Bonnie and I are thrilled to have her here to discuss Galileo's middle finger, as well as some of the ethical issues related to hypospadias. Welcome, Alice. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be with the two of you. And thanks for all the work you're doing for the community. Uh, it's not easy work as we all know but uh, important work and um i think our audience is really going to get a lot of valuable information today uh, from this podcast so in galileo's middle finger you talk about the historical mistreatment and discrimination that those born with genital an anomalies have been subjected to and the secrecy involved with these conditions uh, you'd also mentioned in the book your childhood neighbor, for instance, who was born with ambiguous genitalia and was never told. Uh, can you talk about that and any parallels you see with the stigma and shame that may exist for those with hypospadias and other urological anomalies? And also, what can be done about this? Well, those are big questions, John. But yeah, um, you know, when I went to graduate school, I didn't know anything about the fact that people could be born with variations of sex development. And um, 
my dissertation director had suggested to me that I look at the history of hermaphrodites um, as a dissertation topic for my PhD. And I was looking at like embryology and Darwin's barnacles. And he said, no, you should look at medicine. And I said, why would I look at medicine? It doesn't happen in humans. And he was like, uh, it does. And you should look at medicine. It turns out his father was actually a surgeon who had trained some of the surgeons I would later come to criticize. Um, but I started looking at the medical field and I was shocked to find all these cases of conditions I had never heard of. And I was, you know, a well-educated person, but it had been kept completely secret. So I finished my dissertation in 95. At the time, very few people were talking about these kinds of things in public. And so when I told my mom what I had started working on, she was like, well, do you remember John so-and-so, not you, but a John that I knew from childhood. And I thought she was going to tell me like he'd been in an accident or he got married or whatever, right? The news from your childhood friends. And she said, well, when he was born, they didn't know what sex he was. And, you know, we all knew it, but nobody told him. And I said, well, where is he now? Because there's really good support groups now. And I'd like to connect him to those support groups. And she said, oh, no, he was never told, which I just found shocking, right? That my mother and that whole circle claimed to have known about it, but nobody told the person who's live it was about. It was just pretty shocking to me. So what can be done about it? I mean, I think the very first thing that can be done is to talk openly in the way you guys are doing about these different conditions, including especially hypospadias, because hypospadias is so incredibly common. You know, once I started writing about these things and I would be on the airplane and the book Middlesex came out, which dealt with intersex, people, I would ask people on the plane, you know, what do you think of this book? And they would like start talking to me. And a lot of them actually told me that they knew people in their family with hypospadias because it's so common. So it, talking about it is one really important thing that we can do. Get rid of the veil of secrecy because the secrecy implies that it's somehow shameful and it's not shameful. There's something I learned very useful from my own mother and that was the attitude that the only thing you should be ashamed of is if you treat another person poorly. Otherwise, there's really nothing in your life that you should bother being ashamed of, whether that's alcoholism or that's being born different or whatever it is, as long as you're treating other people well, then you should not have shame in your life and you should deal with what you're dealing with. So then the third thing I think we really have to do is to help medical care providers understand that they're confusing variation and anomalies with problems, right? So they're confusing a statistical difference with a pathology, a medical uh, disease. Those are not the same things. And so we have to help them understand that their urge to correct what they're seeing as different may be a charitable urge, but it's not a well-informed urge. And what we really have to do is sort out what's good for the child or the adult in terms of what they really need. And if the issue for the family is shame or anxiety or depression or discomfort, then those are things that should be dealt with straightforward, not through surgery. Deal with shame, deal with anxiety, deal with depression. And then if there are medical issues that have to be dealt with, let's deal with them as medical issues. Now, if somebody grows up and decides they want to, you know, make a decision for themselves with regard to their genitals, I don't have a problem with that as long as they're well informed. But we're often talking about cases here where parents feel overwhelmed and the fact that they're feeling overwhelmed is not being addressed. And that's a real problem because even if the surgery comes out and everything's perfect and there's miraculously no side effects, if you have not dealt with that parental anxiety and that parental distress and the guilt and the shame and the confusion and the uncertainty, you haven't solved anything. Yeah, I remember a conversation that you and I had a couple of years ago where you had kind of mentioned that about the maternal mind. 
how it kicks in and makes decisions like this very difficult for for some people and i i mean it's it's just it's unbelievable that the um the impact that this could have you know if someone rushes into a situation like this and that actually uh ties right into the next question I have, which is, you know, you also talk a lot about in the book about uh, genital normalizing surgeries. And in one passage, you had mentioned that your belief that children born with genitalia that may look funny, but their genitalia works fine, uh, should not be surgically altered uh, just because their appearance upsets or worries some adults. Um, Can you elaborate a little bit more on your anti-surgery stance as it relates to urological surgery? Yeah, I mean, this is something really that I learned from listening to people who had grown up with these conditions. And I got involved in uh, what was called the intersex rights movement starting in the mid-1990s. So when I finished my dissertation, people who had been born with these different conditions saw that I was publishing about the history of what had happened in the 1800s. And they started contacting me and saying, you know, can you look at what's going on today? And I was again naive and I thought, well, surely today everything's fine. But then when I looked, I realized, no, it wasn't fine. And I started meeting lots of people who had been born with various conditions. And what I was hearing from them over and over again was that what had happened to them in the medical care system had really hurt them. That in some cases it had physically hurt them. So they had lost tissue that was probably functional tissue, whether it was sexually sensitive or it was fertility tissue or whatever it was, was lost. They may have had healthy urethras that somebody attempted to extend and then the extension didn't work and it ended up you know, causing back system problems all over the place. I certainly met men who had had dozens of surgery in their lives before they were even of age to make decisions for themselves where they, yes, they would have had to urinate sitting down, but they had functional parts. Um, and now they had just huge numbers of infections and stenosis and pain and inability to enjoy any kind of normal sex life because of so much damage. So as I was listening to these folks, I kept thinking, well, there must be um, people who went through this, but are okay. But year after year after year, I kept asking physicians to introduce me to those people that they claimed existed. And they kept telling me they couldn't because of patient confidentiality, which is not true, right? They could have absolutely asked those people, would you talk to this person because she wants to meet somebody like you? And those people could have decided. They could have absolutely decided there's nothing that violates confidentiality in that circumstance. And then, you know, when we got the media very involved, journalists would ask the same question. They would ask physicians, well, introduce me to somebody who's been through this, who's happy with it. You know, I was, what is it now? 10, 15, 20, 25 years. Sorry, I got to turn my phone off of people asking to meet these happy people. And I'm not sure where they are. I mean, presumably they really do exist, but do they know what happened to them? Are they genuinely happy? We don't know. So what I really learned from listening to this population was that most of them said, you know, if they had had the choice to choose it, they might have chosen the surgeries when they were old enough to do so. But then if something went wrong, it had been their decision, right? And that that has a different feeling to it than somebody having taken away something you had and, and could have lived with potentially. The other thing is that, you know, you go through these surgeries, but it's not done when it's done you all know there's follow-up and that means having your genitals on display in a medical system repeatedly it also means 
having this sense that there was something wrong with you in many cases and people not really telling you what's going on. So a lot of people I met with these conditions thought that they were, they had cancers, even though they didn't have cancers, they thought the reason nobody would tell them what had really happened is because they had had a horrible cancer. Um, many of them had total misunderstandings of what their medical history was, which I found sad and intolerable in terms of being able to take care of yourself. So it was really clear to me that although I think there were good intentions behind the system, that the system was really being driven by a very simplistic concept of normality. That was a one size or a two size fits all kind of concept that was not serving this population. And it was not serving their parents either, that their parents in many cases were left really unhelped in terms of the anxiety, the depression, the guilt, the shame, the feelings of uncertainty. It didn't help the parents. And I, I wonder too, if, you know, we're talking about genitals and urology, how much extra support parents do need just for that reason? You know, I feel a lot. Like, yeah, definitely. Right. I mean, they are, I don't say lost in the shuffle, but maybe I, I think just by the nature of, of the area, the private area that people find it so hard to disclose or discuss for so many different reasons, as you, as you pointed out. Alice, you've kind of addressed this, but this is the next question on our list. Where do you think hypospadias treatment and the mindset of the medical community is today compared to the past? And where would you like to go see it go in the future? Well, you know, there's more variety of attitudes among pediatric urologists than there used to be. And so that feels like a positive in a sense that they seem, there seem to be some people, particularly the younger generation who are more open to the idea that they need to separate out the issue of statistical difference versus health and pathology, that these are two different issues and they seem more aware of that. The other thing that's much better than when I started this work in the 90s is that there's a much higher interest in gathering evidence of what helps and doesn't help. That said, the problem is in surgery, the evidence issue becomes this constant moving target. So if we have evidence that a particular kind of intervention was problematic and you try to talk with surgeons about that, a lot of times what they'll say is, oh, well, we changed that technique a little bit. So now that doesn't really apply. So then you collect more data. And then again, they'll say, oh, but we changed it a little bit. So that doesn't apply. And so the evidence is never going to persuade them that there's a problem, which I have a real problem with. And the other issue is, of course, that, you know, urologists who are surgeons, they think surgically. I'm a historian, I think, in terms of change over time, right? We all have that sort of professional orientation. So part of what has to happen is, frankly, pulling these folks, parents, the families away from the surgeons to some degree and getting them to talk with people who really have a different mindset, which is a mindset about what's really the problem here. Social workers, genetic counselors, um, psychologists, these are the kind of people who are actually going to help address those other sorts of issues. So where is urology today? I mean, you know that they're very interested right now in the buccal lining, the, the, the buccal mucosa approach, which I've been a great skeptic of, and I'll tell you why. Theoretically, it sounds fantastic. Theoretically, it sounds like it's a kind of tissue that's meant to stay moist. And um, so in theory, you know, it's your own tissue. It's meant to stay moist. It doesn't grow hair. So in theory, it could make a better urethra in terms of what you're building. In practice, my concern is that when you're doing it on boys who are post-pubertal, and then you have the pubertal um, growth spurt of the testosterone, are you going to end up with problems because mucosal tissue is not supposed, it doesn't grow in response to testosterone the way androgen sensitive tissue does. So the penis is frankly, the penis is going to grow a lot 
in puberty proportionate to the rest of the body because it's responsive to testosterone. Is that new urethra going to grow? And I don't think we know the answer to that. The other problem is that, you know, for all of these things, as we said, you've got follow-ups, you've got side effects, and we know historically that surgeons underestimate typically what the negative side effects are of various surgeries. That's not their fault all the time. It's partly because people are afraid to tell their doctors that something isn't helping. I do this myself. And, you know, you'd think after all the training I have in understanding how the medical system works, that I should not feel like I'm afraid to tell my doctor when she's trying to do something for me and it's not helping. But when you're a patient, or you're, especially when your child is the patient, you're very vulnerable and you need that doctor. You need them not just in terms of the medical care, you need them emotionally to help you. And to say to them what you did really didn't work and it made it worse is an incredibly difficult thing to say because you're afraid they're going to abandon you at that point, that they're going to feel like they failed or you don't appreciate them and they're going to abandon you. So it's extremely difficult for patients to tell the truth when things are not going well. And I, like I said, I do it in my own medical care where like if my doctor who I love is trying to help me and she's giving me something, but it's not working. And in fact, it's giving me a bad side effect. I have to go in there and I feel like I have to be so careful about the way that I tell her this is not working because I feel like she's just going to give up on me and that she's going to feel like I don't appreciate her and I'm going to feel abandoned as I'm a vulnerable person. So I'm sorry, that's a long way to say that I think we were still dealing with the same problems that we were dealing with 25 years ago with a moving target, with experimental technologies, with the fact that evidence is never going to quite get them where they need to go in terms of the sorting out of this stuff. And then just the fact that what a lot of people need is not to be touched. What they need to be, what they need is to be cared for. And that looks really different. Well, the next follow-up question, what is related to everything you've been saying? What keeps hypospadias doctors and pediatric urologists from looking at the long range impact and implications of their work? Why aren't they aware that John Filippelli and all and Tiger DeVore are having really serious urological problems? I think they know that, but they tell themselves that those are the sort of edges of the bell curve in terms of the statistical, you know, outlying. And so they try to tell themselves that those are rarer cases and that's sort of the cost of doing business in their minds at some level. You know, I just remember very vividly. So when I was a faculty member at Northwestern, um, Elizabeth Yerkes, who's a pediatric urologist, invited me to give a talk to the residents there, the pediatric urology residents. And she was telling the story about a child that they had in the service who was a five-year-old boy who had had hypospadias, and they had done so many surgeries on that kid already that he would not touch his penis anymore. Like he wanted nothing to do with his own genitals. And this kid is five years old. And at that point, you know, listening to them, I mean, she sounded really depressed about it and she got it. She understood. She was bringing this case because it was so disturbing to her personally. But at the same time, I really felt like the energy in the room was, well, let's try this thing. Well, let's try this thing, right? And I actually remember that during that, this resident gave a talk in the same session that I was in, and he gave this talk about, you know, the mucosal, uh, the, the mucosal um, tissue approach, you know, using the inside of the cheek in this circumstance to try to build the urethra out of the inside of the cheek. And I raised my hand and I asked the question. So we know that the penis is, you know, androgen sensitive and will grow disproportionately large during puberty. Will mucosal tissue that you've taken from the cheek, does the cheek grow disproportionately 
And there was this laughter in the room, but Yerkes didn't, Dr. Yerkes didn't laugh. She said, that's a legitimate question. And I thought, oh my God, so you're doing this on these kids, right? And we don't even know the question of whether or not these things are going to grow or if it's what's going to happen is you've built a tube that's going to stay the size it was and the penis is going to grow around it. And then what the heck happens, right? It breaks loose. What happens? Strictures, fistulas, we don't know. So it just was really discouraging to me because she was so clearly emotionally getting it, the damage you could do to a child the way you could alienate him from his own genitals by the age of five through surgeries. But it felt like the system was just like plow ahead, plow ahead, plow ahead. And it, it was really disturbing to me. And Joel Frader, who's a wonderful pediatrician generalist was part of that team, you know, and he was, I believe in the room and he gets it. I mean, and at the same time, I just, I just felt so, so much like they're trapped in the system that is all about, throwing medical resources at this problem when this is not fundamentally a medical problem for a lot of boys and men. It's fundamentally a psychosocial problem that is not being addressed in any meaningful way. You know, you guys asked about, you know, what can, what can we do about helping parents? One of the things that I really learned that really helped my own parenting, my son was not born with any kind of anomaly but I had learned so much by that point from working with parents and working with adults who had been born with various kinds of conditions, not just in terms of reproductive conditions, but also people had been born with dwarfism, people had been born with facial anomalies, because I had branched out in my work to try to understand more generally, how do we deal with these kinds of things where the body is socially challenging, but maybe healthy? How do we deal with that? So what I did with my own son was from very early on, we didn't use any euphemisms for his parts. We told him what everything was called. You know, this is your penis. That's your urethra. Like that's urination. You know, we didn't have cutesy names for stuff. We called everything what it was. You know, his testicles were his testicles. You know, his scrotum was his scrotum. Like we, we explained what all the parts were. And the, the consequence of that was that he was really empowered to feel like genitals were something we talked about sometimes. And so if he had, you know, whatever it was, a question about something that he found in his own body, he knew what, how to describe it to me. We teach kids how to talk about tummy aches and headaches and stuff like that, but we never teach them to talk about their genitals and when they have a question about it. And your genitals are pretty confusing in general because not only do they grow in strange ways compared to the rest of your body when you're changing, in addition to that, they feel very special and they begin to feel special early on. So it's really important that we give kids the power to talk about that. It also helps them know how to talk if somebody is being sexually predatory on them, right? It allows them to have the language that says, we can talk about this. These are our body parts. We don't have to be ashamed of them and we can talk about those body parts because I think that's so critically important. And that's something parents who don't have kids with these conditions can help do is to talk with their own children about these things because then it's possible to have those conversations that are not ridiculous. So when my, when my son was in first grade, we brought in his pet rat and his pet rat was not yet castrated and rats have enormous testicles. Like if they were humans, they would be soccer balls. <laughs> They're huge. So I brought him in and one of the kids asked me, what were these things under Treacle's tail? And I was confused at first what he was asking and I realized he was asking about the testicles. So I said, oh, those are Treacle's testicles. And pandemonium broke out in the room. And my son and I both looked at each other like, what's going on? And we, we were so confused because we didn't realize that 
Like kids in the room thought that was a terrible word to say, right? And, and the kid who had asked didn't know what the word was. He'd never heard the word. So he said, I don't know what that is. What, is, what are testicles? And the kid next to him said, it's where when you get punched, it really hurts. And I thought, oh my God, is this how kids are learning about their genitals? Like they don't know the names and then they're being told, you know what it is because when it's punched, it hurt. Like I just felt so sad. And, you know, note got sent home because I had used a terrible word. Apparently. <laughs> I just was like, seriously, we can't say these words to kids. But it was that kind of thing. So I ended up, I actually wrote a book about talking to your kids about sex, which I'm not plugging on this, but it's very, it's purposely very cheap. You can get it on Amazon. It's called The Talk. It's available in audio and ebook, and it's also available in print. It's six bucks on purpose, cheap, so that you can buy it. And one of the things it talks about is genital differences and how some kids are born with those. And that it's really important to talk with our kids about the fact that people come different, that stuff is different sometimes. Because then I think we are all empowered to actually have frank conversations. Yeah. It was so funny when my kid was in preschool, they were talking about baby cows. And the teacher told me about this later. My kid was like three years old. And one of the kids asked, how does the baby cow get out of the mother's stomach? And the teachers were like, oh my God, what do we do? What do we do? So one of them said, the birth canal, they, they come to the birth canal. And apparently my son raised his hand and he said, is that the same as the vagina? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and then my son supposedly told the class, he said, the baby's not in the stomach. If they were in the stomach, they would be digested. The baby's in the uterus and it comes through the vagina. That's how the baby gets out. And the teachers were like, you know, mortified that the kids were all going to go home and use these words. And I was like, what's, what's the big deal about using the word uterus or vagina? These are body parts, but that's where we need to move past this sort of idea that we can't talk about this stuff. These are body parts. We can talk about them. Where is your son today? University of Chicago, he's a senior majoring in physics. <laughs> he did not go into biology. I, I really think one critical thing that parents need to do as they approach a consultation is to try to articulate their goals. And that's going to be the short-term goal of the consultation itself. What do you want to get out of that meeting today? What do you want to make sure you obtain from that meeting? But then in addition, I think it's really important to articulate your long-term goals from this care encounter, from this engagement with these care providers. So that's not something we're normally doing when we approach our doctors. And I, again, learned to do that in my own medical care, but also in my son's care when he was growing up because I had worked with so many families that had run into problems. And one of the things we would do is take a piece of paper and bring it with us in which we would articulate the goals for today and our long-term goals. And we would actually begin the conversation by showing the doctor the piece of paper and saying, we decided to articulate what it is we're trying to do and we wanna tell you, so it's not a secret. <laughs> so you don't have to guess at why we're here. This is why we're here. And you know that might include some very basic stuff in the case of like bringing my son to the pediatrician, like we wanna get his latest set of vaccines. But often it would include more important stuff like I want to make sure that he feels like he can talk to his doctor about whatever's bothering him, that I can leave the room and the two of them feel like they can have an honest conversation together or whatever it is, right? That what, what his goals are. Um, 
we did actually the same thing with my son's dentist, with his orthodontist. We would write down what our goals were for the short term and the long term. And I think that's something that when you have a situation like hypospadias is especially important to do, because otherwise you end up often with this kind of unhappy experience where you've got this kind of amorphous sense that things are not going exactly where you want to go and you want to talk about some deep issues, but you get to the, you get to the appointment and you're being shuttled through that cog system. And, you know, they're just taking care of whatever it is is on their list and then boom, you're out the door again. And again, that conversation hasn't happened. And maybe that conversation is about what are really our goals? Like, is your goal to get your son to urinate standing up? If that is the goal, why is that the goal? What is the deeper goal beyond that, right? Is that a goal about making him into a man? Is it a goal about making him feel like he can hang with his guys and feel good about himself? So what are the goals? To make him feel good about himself, that's really an ultimate goal. To make him feel good about his future sexual relationships, to make him feel good about going to doctors and not afraid to enter the medical care system, where I know a lot of people I talked to told me that they became very phobic, understandably, of going near medical care. So I think trying to literally write down what are the goals for this, this particular meeting, maybe that's get this test and, you know, have this thing looked at, but what are the bigger goals that you're going for? That I think is critically important. And I think a lot of times physicians assume that they know what your goals are. They have this sort of vague notion that what you want is a happy, healthy person, right? But that's kind of vague. And maybe that's not exactly what you're going for. One of the goals I think parents should absolutely go for is having a positive relationship with their children long-term. And one of the things that made me the saddest about what had happened to so many people that I talked to who had had early genital surgeries was that the surgeries were aimed at helping the parents bond to their children, but ultimately those surgeries became a reason why the parents and the children were estranged from each other. That the children felt confused, betrayed, sold out, treated as if they were abnormal, all the rest of it. And the parents had unprocessed anxiety, depression, confusion, guilt, all of that unprocessed stuff. And the very goal of the early surgeries, which was to promote family bonding, was doing exactly the opposite. So I think one of the things you want to put on your long-term goal list, if you're a normal parent, is put on that list, having a long-term positive relationship with my child feeling like they can come to me and talk with me, feeling like I can be honest with them about my own medical care and my own anxieties and how this has impacted me, not just them, but be honest with them about how this has all impacted me. Doing those kinds of big conversations and taking the opportunity of the latest visit is I think a really important thing to do. I just want to say how much what you've been saying today, Alice, really resonates with me um, as a patient, you know, who's uh, experienced so much of this. And from family standpoint, um, I think one of the most crucial things that you, you've been talking about today and in your book as well is the idea of treating each other, treating patients and the doctors themselves as humans, human beings, fully realized human beings. And um, I just want to thank you for that uh, point, because it is so difficult, as you've expressed uh, so beautifully here, to, to feel that way. Even uh, someone like yourself, who has so much vast experience in this and still find yourself sometimes challenged to mention to your doctor, you know, when something doesn't feel right or may not be working, you know, you're seeing that it's not working, you know, and 
along with that, you know, realizing um, just as a, an, an anecdote for me, um, after my, my book came out, I had the opportunity to text back and forth with one of uh, my pediatric urologists from back in the day. And uh, he expressed things that I never in a million years thought would exist of how he was impacted by having to do the surgery and having to explain to a family that surgery was needed and how that was so difficult for him. Uh, that blew my mind, totally blew my mind. And I thought about that so much when I was reading your book um, and how you mentioned that many doctors are just so well-intentioned and they have their own guilt, their own stress, their own shame, and their own grief in a lot of ways. Yes. And um, that, I don't know if there's anything you, you could um, add to that sentiment, but I just thought it was so, it just resonated with me so much. I think really, you know, learning, learning even the words to use to talk about these things is so important. So I don't think my son would mind me talking about this because he talks about it quite openly. My son had a, um, a dental condition called ankylosis, which basically means his teeth would not fall out. So when his baby teeth he had his baby teeth and then his adult teeth came in and the baby teeth didn't fall out. So he had double rows of teeth. He had shark teeth. They had to pull 21 of his teeth. And unfortunately I figured out too late that they were doing pain control poorly. And he was having tremendous amounts of pain because this was not normal tooth pulling. This was having to break the teeth off the bone to take them out. And I figured out way too late that he was being traumatized by what we were going through. And so he ended up with um, trauma from that, psychological trauma from having his teeth poorly dealt with. And the consequence of it is he wanted no part of braces, which my feeling was that's his decision to make, but his teeth, you know, he has a tough situation. And one of the things that I realized I could help him understand was I explained to him that what he had was something called iatrogenic trauma, iatrogenic meaning medically caused trauma. And I said, your dentist, Dr. L, I'll just use L, Dr. L did not mean to do this to you. He did not realize that the condition you had meant that when he was removing your teeth, it was like unbelievably painful. When we finally got our son to an oral surgeon, the oral surgeon had to take the rest of the teeth out. And he was like, I have never had a patient with such a bad case of this. And he's like, this must've been incredibly painful. And my son felt witnessed by the doctor, the oral surgeon telling him this. And then when I gave him the language of iatrogenic trauma, thereafter, when we went back to the dentist, he actually would say to them, I have iatrogenic trauma about my ankylosis because of the way my teeth were removed. And you know, I get a little teary talking about it. Being able to say that meant that he could instruct the people in the room that he was not the average patient, that he was somebody who had been through something that really was difficult. And it meant that he did not feel comfortable approaching dental work. And, you know, I felt terrible because I should have realized much sooner what was happening and should have insisted on better pain management. And his dentist should have figured this out, but we didn't, we screwed it up. But at least being able to give him that language of talking about the ways in which our screwing this up had hurt him, enabled him to have some empowerment in the room thereafter. And so that was such a powerful thing for him and enabled him to manage stuff. You know, he became quite afraid of shots because part of what they do when they're doing your teeth is they're doing the shots in the, in the um in your gums. And so he, he developed a real phobia about getting his vaccines because of the, sh not just because of the shot, the shot would make him sweat because it would bring back all this feeling of I'm going to be in pain. 
So I worked with him and taught him to manage the medical experience of getting a shot, that he would have a ritual and he would tell the nurse exactly what was going on. I have iatrogenic trauma. It's related to needles at this point. This is what I have to do. I'm going to do this, this, and this, and this. When I'm ready, then you can do it. But until I'm not, until I tell you I'm ready, do not give me the shot. And he would do, and the nurses were always like, oh God, thank you. Like, this is so much easier than a pediatric patient who's like just a bundle of nerves and crying, right? And so he would walk them through what he needed to do in terms of his own anxiety about the shots. And he'd get through that and he'd get the shot and then we would go home. And little by little by little, it got better for him. But that was because he had the language and the power to tell those people in the room, this is my body and this is how we're gonna do this. And you're gonna follow what I'm telling you. And you know, he was like, 13 and 14 when he was doing that. And I was like, this is going to serve him well his whole life because through his whole life, he's going to be in control when he's in a medical care setting in a way that took me 40, 50 years to reach, right? I'm, I'm telling you, I'm 55. I'm still having problems telling my doctor the truth about how I feel about my medical care. That is so relevant to what parents are told. Do, do parents, as parents were told, do the surgery young because the baby won't remember yeah. and children are resilient. I am so tired of hearing that children are resilient. You don't traumatize somebody purposefully because you think they're a little resilient. I mean, yeah. resilience is a different set of skills that everyone needs, but, but, and they don't forget, especially when there are consequences, the body holds that trauma. And if we were doing bad parenting, you wouldn't say, oh, the kid will be resilient. You would say, oh my God, the parents are doing bad parenting. But that is that story that you told is so relevant because the surgeons say they won't remember, they won't be traumatized because they won't remember, and they're resilient. And those three things are just not true. And the family is traumatized. Anyone who witnesses those surgeries is traumatized by the series of events. It's hard. I mean, it's so, so hard. It's, I agree with you. Having your child wake up from surgery, whatever's been done, it's incredibly scary for everybody involved. You know, I had a friend who, uh, whose child was born with a heart defect and the child ended up having to have open heart surgery. Everything went great. Baby was fine, grew up fine. About a year after the surgery, she called me. She said, how come I'm depressed all the time? And I said to her, you know, this was her third kid. And I said to her, you know, your first two kids didn't have anything going on. This one was born. And then you thought he was going to die, right? And he didn't die. But you had to face your baby's mortality at a level you never had to face. And most parents don't have to face their baby's mortality like that. You had to truly face your child's mortality. And nobody helped you. Nobody helped her. They just kept telling her, it went great. Go home. Be happy. And all she felt was scared and conflicted and nobody. And so I told her, you need medical care. You have a legitimate medical need. And she did. She went and told her doctor what I had said and, you know, got treatment for depression. But it was so frustrating to me that it was a year unnecessarily of her staring at that baby every day, worrying that it was going to die because she had had to face his mortality which most parents didn't. And so when, whenever a parent has a child go in for a significant medical intervention, they're having to face mortality at a level most parents don't have to face that early. And it is so hard. It is really, really hard. And we have to take care of those parents because it is so hard. It trips all those genes of protectiveness 
that puts you into that frantic tiger parent state that is so hard to calm down after that. You're reminding me of, of our responses. We could be heroes and we could be with our kid and go through the exhaustion of the, of the time in the hospital. But then when we came home, the consequences would set in and we just, it, it's taking us a lifetime to recover. Yes, it does. Alice, in conclusion, uh, you and I have spoken before quite a bit about what is normal, quote unquote. And I thought that would be a good way for us to kind of conclude today. If you could just share some of your thoughts about whether it's from the medical community standpoint or your own feelings of what it means to be quote unquote normal and all that may entail. Somebody gave me a greeting card one day and I don't know what I did with it, but I loved it. It said normal is a setting on the dryer. (laughs) And I thought that's right. That's all normal is. It's a setting on the dryer. You know, doctors, when they talk about normal, they're talking about basically a statistical average, and they're talking about what range of average they're willing to tolerate before they want to do an intervention. And historically, a lot of times that range that they're accepting is not based on anything in particular other than I'm comfortable with this, (laughs) or my mentor was comfortable with this. You know, when we started doing work on intersex, one of the things we tried to figure out as the team at the Intersex Society of North America was where did the standard come from for how big a clitoris could be before it counted as abnormal? And what we found was that this was just sort of a random choice, that it was not based on actual measurements at all. And people had just decided, well, this is the size at which it becomes sort of noticeable. Therefore, that's when it becomes abnormal. So what counts as normal should not really be our central consideration when we're dealing with especially our children, but our own health as well. What we should care about is, is there something broken that needs fixing? And even if it's broken, does it really need fixing? So if something isn't quite right medically, that doesn't mean that you should do an intervention because sometimes the intervention is high cost enough to the body or high risk enough to the body that it's not worth trying to fix it. I mean, just a simple example from my own life, you know, I have a shoulder that doesn't quite work right. Now I could keep going and trying to get this shoulder fixed with orthopedics and with physical therapy and all the rest of it. What I've come to recognize is doing those kinds of interventions actually introduces risk to my body. And I can find ways to work with this. And I've found ways with my personal trainer to balance myself so that I'm not injuring other parts. And that's a better option for me than going down a route of trying to fix it in terms of an approach that's a more interventionalist approach because of the risks associated. So when we're dealing with kids, I think an important thing to ask ourselves is, is this really something where the cost and the risk is worth doing or can we live with this? And for many things with our children, I would advocate for trying to live with it and talk about it and deal with it because The truth is the world's never going to be perfect. Your body's never going to be perfect. Everything is never going to work perfectly. There may be one day in a million where everything works that way. I think it's much more effective if we try to recognize that there's going to be some stuff about us that doesn't work the ideal as we might wish it to work. But if it's good enough, (laughs) we can accept it as part of ourselves and, and deal with it and not take on the tremendous costs and risks of medical interventions. My, my husband is an internist, so he's an internal medicine doctor. And one of the things he always says to his residents when he's training them is, don't just do something, stand there. 
you know, and the standard line that people use is don't just stand there, do something. But he says the opposite, because as a physician who's been in practice a long time, in fact, somebody who used to help with the Intersex Society of North America as a physician, he recognizes that a lot of the times doctors urge to do something, to bust in and intervene, introduces risk and introduces harm. It doesn't reduce it. So it's critically important that we not have a fantasy that we're going to somehow get to a magical place where everything works exactly the way it should, where everything looks exactly the way it should, and instead recognize that sometimes stuff is not quite the way, you know, it might be if it were drawn by Leonardo da Vinci or designed by the fanciest surgeon in the world, but it's okay. Great. Well, well thank you so much. Um, so as we wrap up our discussion today with Alice Drager, uh, I want to thank you, Alice, again, for your time today and for being so accessible and helpful, not only today, also with my book. I hope that we can do this again sometime. For thank sure. You. And I'm very happy to support the work that you're doing. It's wonderful. And thank you for the work for the community. So important. And Everybody read John's book. It's fantastic. So I want to add my thank you and hope that somehow we can educate parents and coach parents and, and support parents to make sure that their kids stay healthy instead of getting some of these interventions, which are so difficult and have such long range, poor outcomes. But so I just want to thank you for all of your work. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you have any questions for Alice or uh, anything regarding the topics today uh, for me and Bonnie, feel free to reach us at hypospadiasconversations at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. The hosts of this podcast are not medical professionals. And the information presented during the podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice. John and Bonnie are peers in the hypospadias community, people who have been affected directly by hypospadias. And we are sharing our experience with you. If you or someone you love has a medical question concerning hypospadias, please consult your physician.